Good morning. Good morning, church. My name is Mike, and I'm one of the pastors here, or the Bray Campus pastor here at, uh, at Ambassador Church. If you have a Bible, will you open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 6? We'll have the passages on the screen as well, but you could also, um, which is one of the solutions for everything in life, you can also Google it and uh, have that passage right in front of you. That way you could zip around the passage, because this is the longest passage that we're going to read today, is the longest passage that Paul speaks about the issue of sex and gender in more detail and more, on more subject matter than anywhere else in the Bible. And so we're going to be jumping around this passage pretty much all morning. We're in the deep dive series where we are answering questions. The beginning of the summer, we asked questions or gave you guys pieces of paper and an online form that said, ask questions about your faith and what's pressing to you. What objections do you have about Christianity or that your friends and family have? And so we compiled them all together. And then um, we came up with a bunch of different you know, sermon topics. My alternate name for the series was called You Asked For It because you asked for it. And so today we're compiling all kinds of topics into kind of one sermon because there were a series of questions that all have one answer that we're going to talk about today. The questions were this, what does the Bible say about our cultures or many people's current shifting definition of gender? What is our Bible stance on gender roles in marriage or in the church? Is there a scenario where the Bible might affirm same-sex relationships and then mostly, mostly, questions on the topic surrounded, how can we better love and show hospitality to and minister to our non-believing friends who are LGBT plus? And so we're going to talk about it. And uh, my only disclaimer for the discussion today, my only real concern is that sometimes when you talk about a hot topic, somebody will hear something, a word, a way it's phrased, and will go down a track that is something like this. If you're saying that, then what you mean is this. And if you mean that, then you are this kind of person, and therefore, I'm going to label you this and make it a difficult, difficult for me to hear. And if, if anything's possible, if you're coming from a Christian perspective on this topic, or you're coming from a place where you don't know where, really, where you stand with God, and we're talking about an issue, a difficult topic today, my hope is that we can just kind of sit back and say, okay, God, what do you have to say from your word about this topic, instead of doing the typical thing that we do, which is, if you're saying this, then you're saying this, and I'll label you this. My hope is that we are just overly, uh, not even open-minded, but just open to say, God, how could you even change my mind in the slightest today or in a big way? Uh, this is a stupid uh, metaphor, but an applicable one for our discussion today. All of this kind of came into focus when I was walking my dog the other day. Um, again, stupid, stupid comment with a serious point. Uh, every morning at 7 a.m., I walk my dog, Dietrich, and my dog is just overwhelmingly cute. He's a big poodle, 70-pound poodle, poodle. All of my neighbors can't help but come up and say hi to me because, not because I'm very interesting, but because my dog is just that cute. And so pretty much every morning, I have some sort of drowsy conversation with some neighbor as I'm walking around our condo complex. And uh, my big hope in buying a dog and having a dog was to play catch with that dog. Just that was my big dream was to be able to go to the park, play catch, and just have this wonderful moment where I have like a man and his dog, you know. The only problem is that my dog never really learned how to play catch. What he does is he loves the ball. And I bought a bunch of balls when we got a dog, and I tried to learn how to like train a dog into this sort of thing. And so my dog loves an overwhelming desire for any kind of round object that is in the area where he's living. And so I would throw the ball at the dog park, for instance, and he'll go get the ball, and then he'll look back at me and say, 
I got what I want, you know. And then uh, he'll run about 20 feet away from me and he'll drop the ball. And I'll go, well, that's not quite what I was looking for, but I guess I'll go pick the ball up. And as soon as I take a step towards that ball, he just runs back and picks it back up and then walks another 20 feet away from me, looks at me with the side of his eye and drops the ball. And sometimes he'll drop the ball and he'll hover his mouth right above it like, I might leave it here for you or I might just pick it back up. And we never learned how to play catch until one day, just as a strike of God's wisdom, providence on my life, I figured it out. Two balls. Two balls is the solution. So I go to the dog park and I have one ball where the dog is like eagerly awaiting the, the joy of playing catch, one catch with me. And then in my pocket, I carry a second ball. And so here's what happens. I throw the ball. The dog goes and gets it, comes back to about 20 feet, drops it on the ground, and then I pull out a second ball. At which point he picks up the ball, immediately runs towards me, sits, very cute, tail wagging, smiling like crazy, and then he drops the ball that he currently has in his mouth right at my feet. And then I throw this ball. And then he goes and gets that about 20 feet away, drops it on the ground, looks at me. I pick up this ball, pull it from behind my back like it's new. And in his mind, I have an infinite supply of new balls for him to play with. Uh, here's, the, here's the point. We're all like my dog Dietrich in this sense. You cannot expect someone to make a change in their life, change about an opinion, a hot topic, or let's say, for instance, in our topic today, we're partially talking about sex and sex in marriage and outside of marriage and God's design for sex. You can't expect your neighbors, your loved one, or maybe even yourself to just drop an opinion or uh, something that you really hold dear, an identity that you have in your own life about a gender or sexuality, unless somebody provides something more beautiful, more true, something greater, a better savior, a better narrative, and a better life to go chase after. And that's really what we're talking about. I think for, for years, the church has been known for what they're against when it comes to the culture's view of sexuality or the culture's view of gender or the culture's view of marriage. But we have this great resource in the gospel about God's creation and his intended purpose for all of these things that we're going to talk about today. And then the, the reality of the fallen world that most people in our culture will actually agree with, that sexuality is broken in our society. And then we have this great redemption that we have in Jesus Christ that frees us up to a new identity and a new narrative and a new life. And then we get to get to work as Christians to restore a broken world around us. And so our discussion really is taking the narrative kind of story of the gospel, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, and now applying it to the issue of gender and sexuality. The big idea, my main idea here, and, and the main hope in us even preaching on it, instead of doing what a lot of churches do and just avoid it and preach on something that everyone wants to talk about, is to say, let's take the gospel truth that we Christians have believed in our heart and believe it more fully in the area of sex, gender, or how we even communicate the gospel or live out the gospel with people who have an LGBT plus um, identity. All right, so creation, the creation of sex and gender, the fall, the fallen world of sex and gender, the redemption of sex and gender, and the restoration of sex and gender. And this is a long passage. We're reading from 6 verse 9 to 7 verse 4, so uh, get comfortable. Track with me as we read through the passage. Paul writes, Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. 
And that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her body? For it's said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Now for the matters you wrote about, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but since sexual immorality is occurring, each of you should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband in the same way. The husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. That's our scripture for the morning. The creation, fall, redemption, and restoration of sex and gender. The context in this passage is really interesting. You have to remember that this is a new church in a predominantly pagan world. And so you can imagine Paul, uh, you know, Paul has his Madonna mic. He's preaching on stage at church. You know, church wasn't like that back then. But uh, he's talking to his congregation or he's writing to a congregation, you can imagine, having these conversations about a hot topic in his day. And he's got people who have different opinions from all sides, and you'll notice he quoted a number of them in the passage. You can imagine him having two groups of people predominantly. One is a religious group of people who either said sex is icky, sex is yucky, sex is maybe just a necessity for making babies, but if you're really spiritual and you're really godly, you would avoid it for higher spiritual things. Maybe you're so spiritual as you're in your new Christian faith that you don't even need to like dwell down in these yucky physical things because you're, after all, you're saved, you're spiritual now. And so sex is a bad thing. Or you might have religious people in Paul's congregation that say, because people oftentimes are struggling with sin in regard to sexuality, then we should treat it as evil so to help people avoid sin. You might have heard a sermon or two that had that kind of tone to it. And then you've got this other group of people that have a pagan view of sexuality. Some of them said that um, sex is like an appetite, that... Uh, Usually it would be a, the, the old double standard between men and women where women were meant to be faithful to their husbands, but then boys, after all, will be boys. And so the double standard that existed in the pagan world exists to some extent today and in some cultures, and Paul is radically preaching against that to say, husbands, hear me out, if Paul is saying, hear me out, only have sex with your wife. <laughs> now, some of us would go, yeah, that sounds like good advice, like advice we've heard before. But in the pagan world, they would say, oh, interesting. I'll have to take notes on that and get back to you. 
because of the pagan culture that existed in the time. Sex is an appetite. If you can get filled with that appetite in the pagan view, you would then be allowed to better love your spouse because you had this bad sexual appetite already filled. And Paul is countercultural in pre- preaching against the pagan sexuality to say only commit to, only have intimacy with the person that you ha- are also contractually in a marriage contract l- supposed to love and support. That the commitment that you make to a spouse and the financial commitment that you make in linking your, uh, your finances and the family commitments that you make should also be matched by an intimacy and a romantic sexual contact or, and, and relationship. So Paul's got two groups of people in his congregation that are saying, that doesn't really make sense to me because they come from a culture and from a background that says, if I were God, I would not organize it that way. So you'll see if you look in chapter 7, verse 1, 2, 3, and 4, He says in verse 1 that in essence, sex is good. He's speaking against someone who says that you shouldn't have sex with your wife, but instead he affirms sexuality as a positive thing. In verse 2, Paul says you should only have sex without a marriage commitment. In verse 4, he says that there's like a mutual submission that should happen. Instead of one of the spouses or typically the man dominating his wife and owning her, instead they should mutually submit to one another in a sense that they are looking towards the needs and the pleasure of the other above themselves. So he's redefining sexuality, marriage. But the question is, where is Paul getting this information from? I mean, if this is just Paul's opinion, then cool, it's one man's opinion. You have to understand that there is a narrative, there is a story that Paul is a part of and that he's accessing from the Old Testament. So, if, for instance, if you just flip your Bibles back to Genesis or even, um, you know, you, you remember from memory in chapter 1, you'd remember that in verse 27, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God saw that it was very good. There is a story here about God. And if you look across the pages of scripture, you see that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Track with me on this. This is probably like the most conceptual thing we're going to dive into this morning. God is triune. If he were one God, then you might be able to, if, if it were just one and no trinity, you might be able to make the case that God was lonely and sad and he needed someone else and that's why he made male and female to keep him company or that he wasn't good enough alone. But the pages of scripture show us a Jesus that is constantly giving glory and love to the Father and the Holy Spirit. And a Holy Spirit that's constantly illuminating and, and sharing the good news of what the Son has done and who the Father is. And the Father is always doting and loving and giving others, kind of other-centered love to the Son and the Holy Spirit. Early church theologians called this the divine dance, the perichoresis. That in a sense, if you're going to think about the Trinity, they're three persons. They are one, but they are also three separate persons. And because of that, they have a community in and of himself. That the son is always kind of dancing around and giving glory to the Father and the Holy Spirit, and they're all dancing around one another. And in the Godhead, we see the perfect description of intimacy, community, and love. And out of that perfect power, then God chose to create, and creation in Genesis 1 is simply a manifestation and an outflow of the perfect power and love that exists in God himself. Not because God was lonely, but it's also a model for sex and gender in the world today because the Son, though different than the Father and the Holy Spirit, 
is equal with all three of them. They dance around one another. They are three persons of the Trinity. And so you wouldn't, for instance, say that if the Son is different than the Holy Spirit, then one of them must be better than the other, not in the divine dance. They are equal in value, but different in role. After all, the Holy Spirit did not die on the cross for our sins, and the, Father did, the Holy Spirit did not send the Son. Different in role, different in nature of a sort, I guess, but completely equal in God's kingdom. And that's why at the climax of the creation uh, poem in Genesis 1 is that God made male and female in his image. And it says, this was created, it was good. This was created, it was good. But then he made male and female in his image and it was very good. And that's where we can start to see the story of God unfolding into society today because the same is true with our world today, that male and female, though they have different reflections of the, of the identity of God, the, the image of God, they are equal in value in every way in God's kingdom. So for instance, um, there is a kind of image of God that women bear that no man can bear. And I'm not talking about Western views of femininity or Western values or just our popular culture's idea of what a woman should be like, but God's design through the pages of Scripture that he has implanted in women a part of his image that could not be reflected if that person were not a woman. And the same is true with men. There is a part of masculinity, not Western masculinity, Ford trucks doing a Brody donut in some mud, American flag, whatever like things you might think of like the most masculine Western idea of a man, not that, but through the pages of scripture, what God calls men to and the the responsibility they take on and the nature they have because of God's design, they reflect in equal value to women, an image of God that no woman could bear. And that's why the the relationship between male and female are complementary. Not as in they say good things about one another, but that they complement one another. And when they're together, they reflect God's goodness like every bit of creation does. And that's why, for instance, if you were to say your workplace should reflect male and female because God is, his image is in male and female, and therefore your workplace should have voices, uh, if it wants to promote human flourishing, should have voices and opinions and thoughts from male and female because you'll promote human flourishing in living out God's image in that capacity. Uh, The rearing of children is better because it reflects God in two different ways in a way that promotes human flourishing with the raising of children. That's the biblical stance. I'm trying to show you a narrative because there is an alternate narrative in our world today. And sometimes when I say our world today, it sounds like I'm waging some sort of culture war. I'm just saying in the minds of a lot of folks who we are in a a group this size here or that I know and you know and love that says... The Bible promotes an archaic view of sex and gender. That archaic view of sex and gender promotes people who are conservative just for the sake of being conservative because that's like the right religious thing to do. And that that conservative view of sex and gender causes bigotry. It causes people to repress their true humanity by saying, no, 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 fit into this box like we want to repress someone's true humanity and oppress other people by trying to tell them the way they ought to live. But there's an alternate narrative that simply says this, God in his very nature has intimacy and community and complementary relationships in a way that he has then created the world. And there is a nature 
to which, when we live it out, promotes human flourishing. And that's the attitude that Paul brings to 1 Corinthians 6 when he talks about the sinful world and people who are not promoting human flourishing in the Corinthian church. So, second point, the fallen world of sex and gender. Take a look in verse 9. This is probably the most difficult part of the passage and and a passage of Scripture that's been uh, preached for years in ways that were actually not godly, not graceful, but not even in line with uh, the passage itself, but still a a well-known passage for some. Paul says, or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. And then he lists off a number of sins. And what pops out to us, because we live in the Western world today, uh, is sexual immorality or men who have sex with men. Because it's a hot topic, which is why we're talking about it. Nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. There is a fundamental uh, misunderstanding from a lot of people on this passage, and it's this. They read this passage to say, here's a list of people who will not get into the kingdom of God, and they interpret the kingdom of God to be heaven. And so you would preach the passage by saying, here are all the people who will not go to heaven. Don't be one of those people. Amen. Let's bring the band on. <laughs> That's the sermon. But they're misunderstanding the passage because not only, uh, not only are, we, uh, are we using this sermon sometimes to interpret the Bible incorrectly, but keep in mind, verse 11, Paul is talking to Christians in the Corinthian church, and he's saying, and this is what some of you were. All of the best commentators, all of the notable commentators, including Richard Hayes, is saying, uh, a well-known uh, scholar on the passage, is saying that Paul is socializing them into a new kingdom community. And the kingdom of God is a reign. It's, it's a truth of what will happen to us in the future, but it's a reign of God. It's a, a, a ruling of God in our lives today. And so Paul is actually saying, church, this is your future. This is your identity in Christ. Now live it out in your business, in your communication in your sexuality, and in your marriage. He's saying, if the Spirit is working in you and you're a temple of the Spirit and God has saved you and given you His Spirit and that's true of you, then live it out. Take your new identity. Take the the fact that you're washed clean from your sins and take the future hope that you have from Jesus and now apply it, not just to being religious and not just singing religious songs and coming to church on Sundays, but now apply it to how you have sex. And apply it to how you view your very identity, male or female, or anything else in between. And so he's saying, think about the future identity that you have, and then now understand that all of the sins that Paul uh, lists, all of the false identities that Paul lists here, are ways that people were serving themselves over the good of the community and human flourishing. And notice, Paul doesn't just talk about sex. He says sexual immorality, and he addresses uh, homosexuality. But then he also, and in more abundance, talks about greed, which we, you know, no one thinks they're greedy, but really think of it as materialism. And Paul's confronting materialism. And there, uh, it's translated into an interesting English word, but really Paul is also just talking about gossip. He's saying gossips will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says swindlers, which probably all of us wouldn't call ourselves a swindler. You know, like that's, you know, really the identity that you came in here with. Like, I'm a swindler and I need to repent. Most people don't think of themselves that way. But the word swindler is actually saying business practices that are legal, 
but take too much from other people. And you start to look at that list and you start to see Paul addressing any kind of identity and any kind of thing that abuses the perfect created order of God, that abuses the community that existed in God and existed in us before the fall and is now meant to be restored by us in our Christian lives. He's saying, live out the identity that you have in Jesus. And the objection, I think, comes to churches often. The objection comes to Christians that says something like this, why do Christians care so much about sexuality? Like, why is it just on the top of their list? Well, I find it very interesting. I kind of tend to agree with part of the objection, which is this. Everyone has their own list of priorities when it comes to these uh, sins. Like Paul is addressing all of them and he's saying, these are all things that you're using for yourself but should be used for the good of other people and human flourishing. And we have our own priorities. Like the typical kind of, I don't know, I guess you could say liberal type of person would rank sexuality as something that we should not worry about but probably would rank greed, materialism, swindling, and uh, other things at the top. And so some people might say, yeah, I agree with Paul. We should address greed and we should address all of these things. And then we would probably have, in our own bias, say, I don't think sexuality should be a priority in this whole sin list. And then the typical kind of like conservative, Republican-y, whatever, like if we're just labeling the groups, would probably list sexuality very high on the list. And then would say business practices, business is business. I don't understand why that would be a big deal if I'm not disobeying the law. And, and gossip, gossip's just a thing that you do while you're drinking coffee. And they would list that very low on the list. Here's what I'm trying to say. We all come from a culture. We all come from a set of understandings where we would all individually list the priorities here differently. But Paul is coaching the church to say, you should care about all these things because they're all ways that people damage the community and serve themselves. And I don't know, I don't know a lot of churches that are balanced in these areas. I think there are some churches that would treat, that would preach against uh, social justice or preach for social justice, but would not deal with sexuality because it would be a, a controversial issue. And I know people who would never stop talking about sexuality, but never preach against greed. And I don't know where we stand on that, but I don't know that we're super balanced on it either. But I think Paul And God, through Paul, is telling us something about sin in our life. That's the fallen world in which we live. I find it interesting, though, that every person from their culture and from their set of priorities thinks that their set of priorities is the one true way to uh, deal with the world. I mean, all of us bring our own set of assumptions and then we say, how dare the church, yada, yada. I mean, in the end, haven't you ever caught yourself saying, well, if I were God, I would do things differently? but it's because we all bring our own set of priorities. We need to instead be open to what God is teaching us about any of these issues, especially the ones that you don't want to talk about. That's a fallen world in which we live. The objection might also come, uh, last thing about sin, the objection might also come, why can't people just be free to make their own choices? And the answer would be that God's design for human flourishing and for your life, individually, your life, is like a fish who says, I want to be free from these restrictions and I don't want to live in water anymore. That a fish that jumps out of water and lands on land would be free and would be liberated for about four and a half minutes and then it would die. 
And in the same way, when we say to God, God, get out of my life, get away from this thing that you are not allowed to touch, we feel liberated, we have liberty, but the question in God's design is, will it actually work out for you? I've mentioned this a gazillion times, so pardon me that I always end up saying this, but my my wife is a marriage family therapist, and one of the most piercing questions that my wife can ask is, how's that working out for you? And how is it working out for you? I mean, we have so many reasons why uh, sex outside of marriage could be something that you're, you lean towards or that you're even practicing and kind of in now. But how's it working out for you? Or do you see God's design for sexuality to be in intimacy, but because of commitment and because of a one flesh un- unity that you have with pers- a person? And then all of the reasons that you could come up with to say, my girlfriend and I, or my boyfriend and I want to sleep together, um, that you might actually not be promoting human flourishing because you might not be doing what's in their best interest, even if both of you might be acting in what is in your best interest together. What I'm trying to say is, if you ever say to God, um, God, let me do what I want as long as I don't hurt anyone. Let me make my own choices and just make sure that I don't hurt anyone else. My challenge to you would be this. I want you to think long and hard about what you mean by hurting other people. Because if God's design for a culture or for a kid or for a society or for your girlfriend or boyfriend is different than yours, then they come to a head, they come to a conflict. And in the end, we always just bring our own opinion to that thing where we say, I'm not hurting anyone in my definition of hurting anyone else. But God has a design and a created order for each of us in his perfection and his creation. So, halftime. Halftime break. Um, I told you about my dog. He will hold on to something until you give him something better and he'll let go of it and he'll take on this new thing. Um, I'm gonna mix metaphors by just illustrating it in a different way. Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. I think it was the Temple of Doom. Nope, it was Raiders of the Lost Ark. He goes into the end of the temple, right? He's fighting past like darts and all that stuff. And uh, there's a falling boulder at some point that rolls and that sort of thing. Like, I love the movie, but clearly, uh, per my definition of it, I have not seen it in some time. And uh, he gets to the end of the temple and he has a beautiful golden statue that he's trying to get his hands on. And so, but he knows that when he takes this golden statue off of the podium, there's a piston that's going to come up and it's going to set the traps and then he's going to probably die. And so he comes up with a plan. What's the plan? He fills a bag with some sand that he thinks will be the same weight as the statue. And then he gets his face nice and close to it. He grabs the statue and he replaces it with the sand. And at first, this is actually not a great metaphor because it actually all goes bad in the end. But here's my point, that it's impossible to, uh, the quote would be something like this. The idols of the heart, meaning the thing that you look to for joy and significance, the idols of the heart can never be removed without being replaced. The thing that you love that is on the throne of your heart, the thing your identity is in, you're getting your intimacy from this, you're getting your community from this. It's something that you say, I am this kind of person. You cannot just remove that thing because the heart is meant to have something in its core. It's meant to worship something. It's meant to be linked to something for us to have our identity. The idols of the heart, the things that we worship other than Jesus, they cannot be removed without being replaced. We have to give ourselves We have to talk even ourselves into letting go of the sinful identities and habits that we have because we're not just letting go of them, but taking up something more beautiful, more powerful, and more true. In the same way, 
it would be completely ridiculous for you to talk to someone who was sinning in a sexual way or they had their identity in something that was sinful. Or if you say, you shouldn't have your identity in being a businessman. After all, it's just a bunch of money and business stinks. And then once you're, you're going to die. And what's going to happen then? Your, your kids are going to have your Tesla and then they're just going to like do donuts in it uh, or whatever. You just talk down money or just talk down your business, your identity as a business person or talk down someone's identity as a successful person or as a really good mom or as someone who, uh, uh, let's say someone's gay and they uh, say, it is a por- core part of my identity that my sexuality shapes who I am. It would be ridiculous for you to say, you should hate that thing. But we spend a lot of time doing that oftentimes. We think our tact in having a conversation about sex and gender is, I'm going to tell you about how that's bad, and then I'm just going to leave you there. But the idols of the heart, they can't just be removed. They have to be replaced. So the Bible, though, gives us a greater narrative, a greater story to live in, a greater community and a greater intimacy than anything that we can find in the world. The redemption of sex and gender comes when our heart is redeemed and saved by Jesus. Take a look in verse 10. In verse 10, Paul says, these people won't inherit the kingdom of God. And that's what some of you were, but you were washed. Can I just ask you? How many bad decisions have some of us made about sexuality because we felt dirty. And we made a choice that we thought was bad and we thought it dirtied us. And so then we thought, I might as well make the decision again because I'm no, I'm no better than what I did before and I'm not gonna change because I'm a dirty person or I'm a ruined person or I'm a person that's not worthy of being with a better person. And what good news it is for Paul to talk to a church of a bunch of people who probably pretty much disagree with him about sexuality and gender. And he says, remember, your true identity is that you are washed, not by your religiosity, not by being super good, not by being celibate for some amount of time so God will finally approve of you, but because of what Christ has done on your behalf. And so Paul's reminding the church, you were washed. In God's eyes, you're clean. And now live into this new identity that you have as a person who is forgiven and set free. You were sanctified. Sanctified is kind of a church word to say uh, the long-term growth process, the change process of God taking you from where you are to where you're going to be in eternity. And even the Bible describes that the Holy Spirit that's in you now when you give your faith, uh, put your faith in Christ, will not finish that work until Jesus returns. So God's promise is that he will be sanctifying you in your life. How many choices have you made because you thought, this situation that I'm in, or this identity that I have, it'll never change. Or how many of you, maybe who are a Christian, thought, I kind of want to be a Christian, but if I become a Christian, then I'm going to have to change this thing. And what's going to happen of my life if I have to change this thing that's currently a part of my identity? And it, it might even have scared you away from becoming a Christian because you knew that there was an implication to having God in your life. Some of that sounds kind of cerebral. What I'm trying to say is we have these these costs of discipleship sins, these cost sins, these things that we know will be costly if we become a Christian or if we grow in our faith because we know it's going to be hard or we're going to have to let go of something in order to take up something greater. And so Paul's telling the church, you're not going to stay the same. 
You're going to be okay. Trust the Lord that he's going to take care of you in the process of you letting go of something sinful and taking up something greater. There might be pain in it. There might be loss in it, but he's sanctifying you. And God is trustworthy in that process, so trust him. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. I'm not sure if any of you in your testimony of becoming a Christian kind of just arrived at becoming a Christian. Like some of us have testimonies where we go like, this was the day I signed that piece of paper. I said, I'm being a Christian. I just made the decision. Or some of you, you might have just been at church and then you had your questions answered and you saw that God was good. And then all of a sudden you just arrived at a place where you're going like, Holy crud, am I a Christian now? <laughs> like you just go like, I guess I'm a Christian. I guess I love Jesus. And this is so interesting because for a bunch of pagan people who have no background with Jesus are hearing Paul say, you can be one with Jesus Christ and it's gonna change your whole deal, your whole identity. Imagine these people hearing for the first time that Jesus guy is the son of God and he's gonna be like one with you for all of eternity. What new news that might be for any person who never expected that they would become a religious, Christian, Bible-believing type person. Some of these people are just unlikely converts. It reminds me of the testimony of Rosaria Butterfield. She wrote a book called um, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. I thought it was so interesting because her book basically is what she, people interview her all the time because she was an atheist college professor at a, a, a public school, public college. And she was also in a same-sex relationship at the time. And then all of a sudden, a pastor from like a, a church in town invited her over for dinner. And they asked her all kinds of questions and showed her some great hospitality. And then uh, people always interview this lady, Rosaria Butterfield, because they say, what philosophical changes, what deep diving philosophical study did you have to do to finally become a Christian? And she describes the fact that like in the end, I finally met some Christians who would look, across, look at me across from a table and not treat me as the gay agenda or not treat me as a secular argument that if it's made well would destroy Christianity or wouldn't just treat me as some large monolith group of people who all think the same way, but they actually just cooked Costco lasagna and invited me over on Sunday nights. And then I asked questions and they weren't threatened by my questions and they still loved me when I disagreed with them. And so they invited me over again and they showed hospitality. And she just described the very plain process of people who showed them hospitality and, or showed her hospitality and loved her and then presented like a, a gospel pebble in her shoe where she just couldn't avoid it. She couldn't walk anywhere without it. And then all of a sudden she got to a decision point where she said, holy crud, like, I think I'm a, a Christian now. And then as a Christian, went through the process of sanctification just to go, uh, okay, what does it look like for me to be a previously atheist, now Christian college professor who is in a same-sex relationship? And this kind of gets into our final point, actually, which is the restoration of sex and gender. What role do we play as Christians in helping people know the gospel and living it out ourselves. Paul here says, flee from sexual immorality. He's got this fantastic balance of a biblical worldview and grace and, and process with some of the people in his church. And I find it interesting that the advice that, like, Paul gives us kind of a tone of how to have this type of conversation, but most of it really does boil down to hospitality. We're redeemed in Christ. We have a new identity in Christ. But we have to live out the gospel in a way that communicates that in some way. So 
Paul says we're washed, we're sanctified, we're justified. In uh, chapter 6, he says that we're members of Christ himself, we're one with him. We have a community. And if we can live that out, people won't have to leave the church to go find a community that accepts them. People won't have to abandon their faith in order to be themselves simply by the act of us living out the gospel. So your small group, if it functions well, like a small group Bible study, or your group of Christian friends will function well when we live out the gospel to say, you can be who you really are, and you can say what you really believe, and you can go through the process of like having difficult questions about your faith or even how it works out in your sanctification, and everyone else around that little circle of Bible study or around that lunch table is going to be a bunch of people who know they're deeply flawed sinners who are in no way saved by their good works. They're not saved because they only have sex with their spouse. They're not saved because they don't have gender identity issues. Or they're not saved because they just are uh, like really religious people. But that we're in fact like, like kept away from being saved sometimes if we think we're so well behaved but that we're deeply flawed sinners who need a savior. If that's the case, then we're all gonna be in that process of being sinners together who all need to be sanctified in Jesus Christ. And so you can just say what's actually happening in your life if we're living out the gospel because you won't need to pretend because there's no reason. You're washed, you're justified, and you're being sanctified in Jesus Christ. So I wanna just close with tips um, to be as practical as I can. Daniel Ostell, our pastoral resident, did some research this week for us, uh, and he actually went to a conference that was held at Evangelical Free Church of Fullerton, uh, where a whole weekend-long thing that um, did all kinds of study. And that's why today's discussion is a little bit more of a sermon than a study, because there's lots of great resources out there to study if you're interested in actually diving deep into some of these topics. But uh, there's kind of six points that I want to hand to you if we're trying to specifically do well by living out the gospel with our LGBT plus uh, neighbors, friends, and loved ones. My first piece of advice is to listen, learn, and listen again. If you're in a conversation with anyone, or even you're here and you're kind of going like, I don't, I don't know where I stand with God, but I want, I want Jesus in my life, then we need to be a community for anyone, and we need to do a lot of listening and a lot of learning. In the same way, my advice to us, if we're having a conversation with someone who's going through it or has major questions about their uh, sexual identity or gender identity, is for us to be a group of people who watch what we say and need to uh, apologize if we misstep and say something that's offensive and hurtful to other people. So listen, learn, listen again. Pay close attention to your language. Understand gospel first and sexuality later. The gospel needs to be the primary source of our conversation if we're trying to help someone actually know Jesus and not just act better. So it stands to reason that it's gospel first, help people know Jesus, have a conversation about what it looks like to know Jesus and how good it is to let go of anything in our identity and take up Jesus and then sexuality later. I'm reminded of 1 Corinthians 5. Paul confronts sexual sin in 1 Corinthians 5 and then he says, I'm not confronting non-Christians, because they're non-Christians. They don't know Jesus. And so he's addressing sexual sin in the church because we're not meant to judge people outside of the church in that same way. Don't be a hypocrite. I know this is like really normal, normal advice for churches, but don't be a hypocrite. Sometimes it's so easy for us to point out sin in other people that we don't personally struggle with that it's always easy to go, that's fine, just 
do this, do this, do this. It's no big deal. And inevitably, it's a sin that we're pointing out in other people that we don't personally struggle with. And so have some, some humility and a lack of hypocrisy in that. And then uh, last two things, don't be afraid to say I'm sorry. And as best we can, live out the gospel so that we can be a safe group of people and you can be a safe person to talk to no matter what comes up in a conversation. Let's pray.